Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm very pleased to welcome a good friend, Dr. Mark Boom, President and CEO of Houston Methodist. Prior to becoming CEO, Mark was Executive Vice President of the Methodist Hospital and CEO of the Baylor Methodist Primary Care Associates. Mark was an undergraduate at the University of Texas. He graduated from Baylor College of Medicine and holds an MBA from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome and thanks for being with us, Mark. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. So let's jump in with a question about adapting to changing circumstances. Folks will recognize being in Houston, given your geography, you've had to become an expert at enormous disruptors, not the least of which being things like hurricanes. I'd like to start by asking you, which parts of the healthcare delivery system do you think are most susceptible to disruption during times of extreme stress? It could be a natural disaster, it could be the pandemic, or any other form of upheaval. Which areas of the system are most vulnerable to disruption, and what do you do to restore functionality? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And sadly, uh, in Houston, we are all too experienced with uh, with disasters, natural disasters. Um, you know, I've been here at Houston Methodist for 24 years, and in that time have gone through a tropical storm, Allison, that completely flooded out our main hospital in the Texas Medical Center. You know, we went from 600 patients down to 18, and it was a couple of years of work to get the place back up to uh, where it was previously. You know, we dealt with some of the fallout of Katrina with people evacuating from New Orleans and Louisiana and helping them. Um, not long after, we had Rita and did a big evacuation of the entire city where the evacuation was worse than the, the actual event. We had Ike in 2008. You know, and then we very famously had Harvey. Um, to put that into perspective, Allison, which flooded out the Texas Medical Center, dumped 31 inches right above where, you know, the watershed of where the Texas Medical Center is and all these institutions flooded. Harvey dumped 51 inches on the city. And the work we did to be prepared, and that'll get us to the vulnerability piece, uh, actually meant that we actually got through that very effectively. The people were dramatically affected throughout Houston. And of course, we've all dealt with COVID. Um, and in the midst of COVID, we you know had one hurricane scare. And then this winter, we had kind of a, a great freeze that was um, quite problematic for us uh, in Houston. So we're very experienced. And you know, I got to say, um, hurricanes, floods, tropical storms, those things feel kind of old hat. I mean, we've worked through so many of the issues. Um, COVID was an entirely different story, of course. You know, when you look at the vulnerabilities within the system, probably the biggest is is people and staffing, because during these events, the short-term events like, like hurricanes and floods, you know, access to the facilities, how you staff, and of course, what's going on in people's own personal lives as they're dramatically infected sometimes um, are major, major issues. Um, you know, the other thing kind of within our system and vulnerability for everybody is supply chain. And we see that in every disaster, but we big time saw that obviously in COVID for everybody. Uh, one of my favorites sayings that, that we came up with or our team came up with, which was, I gag. And it was, I got a guy. And it was, you know, how do, how do we go find somebody? And I can tell you on my end as CEO, I got a guy felt like every Tom, Dick and Harry, every bird, you know, was sending me notes saying, hey, I can get you this, I can get you that, you know, and then sifting through a lot of that was quite interesting. On a systematic basis, you know, those are, those are major issues. Um, and those are really where most of the problems come to bear. 
But a large, sophisticated health system like ours, like other uh, colleagues in the Texas Medical Center, we have lots of backup and lots of ability. And of course, you know, many times the real pointy end of the problems comes around, uh, you know, the infrastructure that's supplied, whether that is our water supply or our power supply as, as the most common things that we see. Where we really run into problems are the smaller entities throughout the community. So they're less sophisticated, they have less infrastructure, they're much less disaster hardened, they're not under the same rules and regulations um, that we're under. And so, for example, for the probably third time in the last decade when we had this freeze this winter, the big, big pinch point for us was dialysis centers in the city because they all shut down. They're unable to work. And in this case, you know, the biggest issue we faced in town some was power, but the biggest issue was water access. And of course, water access, power is important too, but water access is critically important for dialysis. Um, these things all shut down. So every one of our hospitals basically was a triage center for patients who were missing dialysis. Every one of our hospitals had to go into disaster mode in addition to disaster mode to handle dialysis patients, literally convert large swaths of the hospitals to care for those dialysis patients. And of course, you know, that, that underscores a real problem in how we've structured things um, society because these institutions really sort of threw up their hands, said we can't do it, and turned to the big hospitals as safety nets during this. Thankfully, we ended up with a bill in the Texas legislature um, that passed this, uh, this session to really harden those entities a great deal. We made sure they got on the grid, um, made sure they had a lot of uh, requirements in place. We gave the ability for ambulances, for instance, to assess a patient and say, you know, the real issue here is dialysis. We don't have to take them to a hospital first. We can go straight to one of the dialysis centers that's hardened itself and stayed open. And, and you know, while we've been frustrated with the dialysis industry over the last few disasters, they finally listened this time and, and worked collaboratively with us um, to get some of these things in place. Um, hopefully, we'll have that fixed in the future. But uh, ultimately, it's those kind of smaller, less battle-hardened places um, that have been the biggest vulnerability. So let's follow up on that. One of the things that troubles me about uh, kind of an unintended consequence of our pricing situation is the fact that uh, insurance companies have begun excluding uh, traditional healthcare providers from their uh, approved networks of options for patients for things like infusion or perhaps dialysis, as, as you pointed out. Here's an example. My wife won't give me a hard time for sharing the fact that she has rheumatoid arthritis. And so Sandy gets, she gets infusion therapy uh, about once a month, but she has to go to this um, standalone facility. It's kind of in a strip mall next to a Dunkin' Donuts. And as you pointed out, Mark, those places lack our resources, not just in case of a natural disaster, but in case anything goes wrong that day with the patient. Does it make more sense in your mind for them to become more like us or for us to perhaps reduce our prices to become economically viable as an alternative for the patients? You know, like most things, the answer is going to be a little of both. I believe firmly in competition. Um, I believe firmly in a competitive marketplace that will result in, in good outcomes, but that competition has to be uh, thoughtful and that competition has to have some rules associated with it. So, 
you know, competition by setting up a dialysis center to pick on them some more or to set up an infusion center, but not having any of the hardening in place to handle a natural disaster to step up when you're really needed. That's not really competition at that point. And in fact, from a system standpoint, um, the hospitals who put in all that infrastructure have all that cost, um, importantly have all that cost because without us, disaster would have happened literally for those patients with dialysis. Look at another example. Who stepped up and did infusion, when you talk about your infusion center example, for the monoclonal antibodies during COVID? I don't think I saw many of these private standalone infusion centers step up and say, hey, we're going to sort this out for the government and we're going to do this. It was the academic medical centers and the large hospital systems. I mean, we did more infusions than almost anywhere in the country, and certainly anywhere in the state of Texas. And it was a massive undertaking to create all these parallel systems because we couldn't do it in our normal sites. We had the ability and the sophistication to do that. So we can't create a pricing structure that disadvantages the institutions that are the backdrop, that are the safety net that keep things going. But at the same time, we can't price out of existence to do this. But of course, if your pricing is basically that you don't have to do all the same things, you have dramatically unfair advantages. And if we go all the way there, we're in a world of hurt when, when a problem happens. So, you know, I think it's incumbent on us to work to figure out how to do things as efficiently as possible, as uh, non-resource intensive as possible, but also advocate that the rules have to be level, um, that, you know, kind of, you know, site neutral payment makes sense up to a point, but it doesn't make sense um, if site neutral payment means go to the lowest common denominator of a place that's not actually doing all the things that it needs to do. And so somewhere there's a middle ground that we have to sort out. I think that's a very insightful way to think about it. Let's take a little bit of a detour in terms of that kind of uh, disaster or or disruption um, adaptation, particularly in the short term things that we talk about like storms. But Front and center in in the long-term pandemic, staff fatigue was a major issue and continues to be a major issue. How do you motivate folks who are exhausted? What have you found that works and what doesn't when the people that are on the front lines that we're all counting on to save lives are just about at their elastic limit? Yeah, thanks for asking that. And, you know, you heard my beginning of my answer when we were talking about disasters and the first vulnerability um, being staffing, um, because the people who make it happen during a disaster because of their resiliency, because of their creativity, because of stepping up to the plate and doing what's necessary uh, and really answering the calling that I believe healthcare really is and recognizing that the community, our patients, uh, our consumers have put their trust in us and that with that trust comes our obligation to them and that what we do has true purpose. And so I am forever grateful for the people who have done just amazing things throughout every single disaster we've faced. And no one has had a harder time during COVID than people on the front lines of healthcare. It's been incredibly difficult. And I think we all owe them tremendous, tremendous gratitude. So how we then support them, how we help them recover, how we reward them, um, all of those are really critical issues. So you think about a hurricane, really it's about making sure you have the right teams on place, sort of right out recovery. You know, we went through Harvey where that was five days. It was exhausting um, because you just couldn't get people in. But at the end of the day, 
after a horrible, you know, 120 hours or something like that, you know, people got to go home. And obviously there was a lot of unfortunate uh, problems people had at home and had to deal with that. But still, um, you know, recovery came quickly. This was a totally different disaster, of course, because of its long-term nature and the stamina that was required. And we saw that very, very early on. And so when we in early March of 2020 started setting out what are our guiding principles around COVID, one of the key ones, in fact, right up at the top was protect our people. And when you have the right culture in place, the right things happen. And so I can't emphasize that enough, that if you don't have a solid, robust culture in between the pandemics and in between the disasters, you are not going to have the right culture during disaster. I've said this about strategy as well. If you found out that your strategy was broken during COVID, you didn't have the right strategy, right? I mean, if you have the right strategic uh, alignment, you're going to thrive during COVID. Um, difficult, but you're going to thrive. So first and foremost, it's about that baseline culture, because when you have that baseline culture, you know that people will step up and do the right thing. You know, so how do you take care of people? Um, it's, it's multifaceted. You know, first off is setting the expectations for what we do. When we communicated back in March, we knew we were getting into, you know, a very difficult situation, but it's very unknown. You know, it was very much about rallying the troops, getting everybody fired up, recognizing the shared sacrifice that we were all about to go through, uh, and over-communicating, basically, saying things over and over again, being as transparent as we possibly could so that we would always tell them what we knew, when we knew it, um, recognizing, acknowledging, and actually really emphasizing with them that, look, we're going to tell you something on Monday that we may change our minds on Thursday because it is a very fluid situation. But we promise you we will be as transparent as we possibly can. And I think that communication is critical because with that comes trust. But trust is earned by the leadership, by the institution, by the culture over many, many years. So again, if you don't have that to begin with, you're in trouble when you go through. So we set about then how do we protect them and what does that mean? And of course, early on that was PPE, but very early on that was also recognizing that the experience for an employee during COVID was wildly different, right? You had people on the front lines, you know, obviously dealing with all the issues of PPE and dealing with, you know, how do I go home? How do I go home safely? What do I do to prepare myself so that I'm not bringing, you know, a virus we don't understand back to my home, back to my children, all that and all the stress and dealing with death and suffering and all of those kinds of things. Um, you know, in Houston, we had a mini surge in the first bit, but we had a massive surge uh, in the summer and then an even more massive surge in the winter. But on the other end of the spectrum, we had a whole bunch of people who, let's say, worked in an operating room and we hadn't quite tapped them yet because we didn't end up in the massive surge. So they're sitting at home, twiddling their thumbs, stressed out, you know, wanting to be there uh, and worried about their job and worried about their livelihood. So very early on, we made some pretty gutsy calls, I think. Um, and thankfully, I had a board right behind me and we said, you know what? We have a strong balance sheet and the time to use it is during a pandemic. And when things get back to normal or things get worse later, we're going to need every one of our staff and they are the secret sauce that makes the place work. So we committed to no layoffs, no pay cuts, no furloughs. I mean, in the depths of the most difficult times. And we told them very transparently, it can't go on forever, but we think we can get through this. And indeed we did. And it was one of the best decisions we ever made in terms of, you know, fostering employee trust, protecting employees, uh, helping motivate employees, helping keep them shored up and recognizing that they were undergoing a lot of stress. Throughout the pandemic, 
we worked a lot on some soft things, frankly. In June of 2020, when things were exploding out of control uh, towards the last part of the month, I mean, we got up to about 40% of our beds uh, at the end of June, beginning of July, that were being used for COVID across the system. It was a pretty frustrating time. Obviously, that was happening. But furthermore, there was huge debate, right? This is when things had become so politicized and people are sitting here seeing these patients struggling for breath, seeing us get uh, so many patients coming in, and yet we can't figure out, are we going to mask? Are we going to agree to do that? What are we going to put in place, et cetera? And so it was a very frustrating time to be a healthcare employee. And so we put, frankly, a lot of soft things in um, from our spiritual care to, uh, you know, some harder things in terms of our employee assistance programs and psychological and psychiatric psychiatric support, but a lot of soft things like, how do we adopt a unit? Let's take some of the administrative places and go adopt some of the units and just literally come up with something fun every day, whether it's delivering cookies or notes or, you know, a whole bunch of different things. Those things matter. And we rallied the community and literally I'd get out there with all our donors and others and say, help us. And it was step up and, you know, a, a twofer. You got to help a restaurant that was struggling and bring in meals for the staff on a unit and know that the community was behind them. Those kinds of things made a lot of difference. We also motivated through bonuses. I mean, it does matter and it is a show of gratitude. So um, later in November, we did a surprise bonus. It was $500 a person. Uh, we called it a You Rock bonus. I um, had some fun with it and told everybody how much they had rocked throughout the pandemic. We linked a bonus at the end of uh, December, another $500 bonus, called a hope bonus to get people through what was shaping up to be a pretty lousy winter. And we didn't even know about the freeze at that point. Um, and we tied that to, to vaccine mandate, which was, you know, obviously an interesting journey for us, but one I would do all over again and one where we really led the way. And, and that's an important point. Part of motivating people is also setting the expectations and setting the culture and making sure that um, they're all on board with the patient comes first. And you know what? A really close second is our employees, um, but the patients come first when we look at that. This summer, as we've, uh, you know, kind of gotten through the worst, and of course, vaccines have really helped. We're seeing a surge here with Delta. But we've said to people, look, we've got to recover. And so we adopted sort of the military rest and recuperation, you know, idea and uh, paid out a thousand dollar bonus plus a day of PTO to every employee. Uh, encouraged them to send us photos of what they're doing. And it's been so gratifying to see all the things people have done um, to, to recharge their batteries and every single week doing something fun. You know, we have Astros suites, for instance, but, you know, we haven't turned those back on in terms of uh, uh, donors and other things that we do. So we said, great. We have an Astro suite for like 40 games. All of our employees, because we mandated, are vaccinated. It's a really safe activity. And so a uh, contest to go do that and many other things. So it's a multifaceted approach, um, but one where they need to know we've got their back, how much we appreciate them, and how really they are the lifeblood of the institution. And when we put patients at the center to do that, it's really about putting employees a very close second behind that statement. Fascinating approaches to the problem, and I'm sure folks in, in other parts of the country have done uh, tried to do similar things, but it's an inspiring story that you tell. You know, Mark, I'd love to continue our conversation and, and actually to spend a little bit of time talking about our latest research. Uh, it would be probably smart for us to do that on a return trip. Would you mind coming back to give us that chance? I'd be delighted. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, but before we do, uh, before we break, I have to ask you about a fascinating hobby of yours that I just learned about. It uh, it seems you collect hand-cut wooden puzzles, if I have it right. 
how did you get started with that? And can you share an interesting story or two about the puzzle collecting? <laughs> well, I'm going to put everybody to sleep here. I'm not sure I've heard anybody call wooden puzzle collecting a fascinating hobby before, but <laughs> uh, but actually it's been a fun thing uh, for me. And it, it actually goes way back to when I was a resident at Mass General and then my wife and I went up to a little inn in Vermont and did these wooden puzzles there. And they, they you know, basically were like, wow, these are amazing. And then looked at the price of them and said, well, we'll never afford those. Um, you know, it's not a hobby for the faint of heart because they are hand cut, very detail oriented. Um, but later, many years later, uh, kind of started getting into that. It's a, a real relaxing time for me. You know, you kind of turn your brain off a little or oftentimes even turn your brain on and kind of do that background processing while you're, while you're sitting, pulling something like that together. And it's fun family time as well. Um, I have a daughter in particular who, who loves to do that. She's a medical student right now and it's a great, you know, recharge for her batteries as well. So started collecting them and uh, funny story. Um, so we were the hospital where, um, Bush 41 and, uh, Barbara Bush, uh, you know, received their care, which was a, a great privilege for us. And so as a result, I, I got to know them really, really well. And early on, I've been CEO now for 10 years. I ran the main hospital for about seven years before that. So somewhere right around that time I was making the transition, uh, you know, they were in-house and uh, he was in-house. I mean, this was public, so I'm not, I'm never going to violate HIP, of course, but uh, uh, she's sitting there in the room with him and I went to visit her and, you know, I'd met her briefly, but I hadn't really gotten to know her. And I was like, oh, this is great because I'd heard that she loved wooden puzzles as well, particularly from this company. And so I go in there and I'm like, start talking with her. I'm like, oh, I heard you love these puzzles. I love them too. I collect them. And with, you know, Barbara Bush, of course, known for her sort of dry wit and kind of little edge to her, uh, just without skipping beats says, oh, well, if you're buying those, they're paying you too much. And I just, <laughs> I just cracked up. It was the funniest thing. And it was the beginning of a great friendship. So over the next few years, actually, she and I traded puzzles. So um, she would send me a puzzle with a note. I mean, I've kept all these things, as you can imagine. And I'd do the puzzle. She'd be like, no, hurry, just do it. And so I'd be like, oh, my gosh, this is so cool. And I'd do it like five times, you know, because and then you'd return it. And uh, and then I'd send her a puzzle with a note. And so we did that for, for a few years. It was, it was really pretty cool. And actually, they very graciously agreed to let us name the atrium in our new building uh, after them. And uh, also, uh, unfortunately, passed away a, uh, about six months before we ended up really opening it, but got to see it um, and actually tour it as they were patients both. And in that atrium, we have this beautiful, huge mosaic that we moved from outside a building that, that was put up in 1963, a one and a half million piece mosaic that was restored and put there. It's called the Outstretching Arms of Christ uh, and has imagery of uh, obviously our faith basis, but then also kind of the history of medicine behind it. It's really a beautiful image. And so we made uh, Mrs. Bush a puzzle and had them craft a custom puzzle and were able to give that to her, you know, in our, somewhere in our last year of life. So it, it really makes me happy to know that she enjoyed doing that as well. So it was a fun, a fun connection that we had. I just think that's a great story. And, you know, we don't need crazy technology to touch people. I think that's a great story. Thanks for sharing it. Mark will join me next time, and I hope you'll be back with us too. Thanks for listening. We hope you find these conversations thought-provoking, and we look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then.